please open your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We will be in the last portion of chapter 1 and the first five verses of chapter 2 tonight. If it's your first time here, I want to give you my sincerest welcome. On behalf of our fellowship here at CC Conejo Valley, we go verse by verse through the scripture so that we don't miss the beauty in which the authors wrote as they were moved by God the Holy Spirit. I have decided to continue our journey through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, a letter written while he was in Roman house arrest. So we'll be continuing through that tonight. So before we read the text together, let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, lead us in your spirit, Lord, to understand what you have inspired Paul to pen to the church of Colossae so that we may glean the wisdom that you have in it. Uh, Help us see more of your son, Jesus, so that we are empowered by your spirit to live for your glory, Lord. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. So Colossians 1, starting at verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Paul writing to the believers in Colossae by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Starting at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to this power which mightily works within me. Verse 1 of chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. Verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think it was about when I was 11 to 12 years old when I began to genuinely care about other people's opinions about me. In fact, I remember a time in sixth grade when I had a crush and I finally mustered up the courage to hold her hand when the bell rang after lunch and we headed to class. My heart felt like it weighed 20 pounds as we made our way through the crowds, imagining what the onlookers might think when they turned to see this public display of mutual commitment, as serious as it can be in the sixth grade. Next thing I know, one of my friends rushes past me, and I see him wave over a crowd in front of us, tapping them on the shoulder, cupping his hands, talking into their ears in a whisper, pointing at me and my crush, and then running off laughing. Have you ever experienced something like this? Where you could almost literally smell the aroma of gossip. 
you begin to ask yourself, what is he saying? What is she saying? Why did it have to be said into their ear? Are they talking about me? How come no one has waved me over to tell me this secret, mysterious message in my ear? The messengers of these mysterious messages, messages often carry a sort of pride. A pride we are all familiar with and the Bible actually anticipates us having. Proverbs 20, 25 verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to investigate it. Put a different way, God boasts in concealing a truth and kings boast in seeking it out and oftentimes finding it. Think of all the great scientists who have discovered laws of physics or cures for diseases. They are forever enshrined in history as remarkable people. Yet they only discovered or investigated what God had hidden before the beginning of time. It was already present. In other words, it is God's glory to have the power to create and conceal something, and it is man's glory to have the power to explore and evaluate it. To have glory over something means to have grounds to boast. This is the pride I was talking about earlier when you have access to knowledge others don't. It sometimes sounds like this. I know something you don't. I'm in a group you couldn't get into, but I did. I have all of these accomplishments and you don't. Which causes people to ask, what's their secret? Whether it was a perfect score on a test everyone else failed, a raise or promotion no one else has received in decades, or even clear skin and a head full of healthy hair, we have all asked this very thing. What do you do? What is your secret? Let me in so I can experience what you're experiencing. We often desire that one day someone will let us behind the curtain and experience the glories of the mystery that were once concealed to us. I say all that to say that the citizens of Colossae also had a knack for, for secrets and mysteries. The church in Colossae, to whom Paul is writing to, was struggling with getting tired of hearing about Jesus. They were growing apathetic, careless with the Son of God, and began being enticed by local false teachers who were drawing them into their secret rituals and syncretistic practices. To be syncretistic means to combine or unite different beliefs from different religions with the goal of experiencing an overall greater religious experience. The Colossians were emotionless when the birth of Christ was preached, yet were enthralled with the visions and dreams from these cultic practices. They were disinterested when they were encouraged to fix their eyes on Jesus, yet delighted in hearing vain philosophies and sweet nothings from their local false teachers. The Colossians shrugged their shoulders at teachings like the Sermon on the Mount, yet were stoked and stood in excitement when a, mysterious, when a mysterious magical practice was presented to them as their only solution. So in light of this dangerous teaching infiltrating this church, their pastor, a native-born Colossian named Epaphras, is in Rome sharing all of this with the Apostle Paul while he is in Roman house arrest. 
So Paul writes a letter to elaborate on the supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes to show them how Christ is supreme in our salvation and how Christ is sufficient for our sanctification, for us to be made more like him. In the first eight verses of chapter one, Paul is exploding with gratitude for how much fruit the gospel has sprung up in the Colossian church. And it is this evident fruitfulness of the gospel that has provoked Paul and his companions to pray continuously for them to increase in the knowledge of God's will in verses nine through 14. In verses 15 through 23, as we looked at last time I was with you, Paul beautifully explains the person of Christ and how how he reigns forevermore from the cosmos to Calvary, which leads us to our text for tonight. If you have an outline, let's look at it briefly together. I titled this message, The Mysterious Message Made Manifest by a Minister. And tonight I intend to answer four questions. Number one, who is the one God called to carry the message? The minister. What exactly does this messenger reveal to his listeners? The mystery. Point number three will be, why does this messenger work so hard? The mission. And then the last point will be, how does this so-called powerful saving message look like practically? And that is the manifestation. Through all of this, I pray you are encouraged to not only run and tell all of your friends and family about this mystery, but that you hold on to it yourself and treasure it in your own heart so that you are not swayed by something that merely appears more desirable. So let's begin there. Who did God, who did God call to carry this message? Point number one, the minister. Verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So right before this, in verse 23, Paul says that he was made a minister of the hope of the gospel that was made known to all creation. So as we continue into verses 24 and 25, he presents some details that characterize him as a particular type of minister. And that is one who rejoices in suffering. This is such a foreign concept to the non-believing world, and frankly, many believers as well. This reality of rejoicing because of your suffering, not in spite of it. And as simple as I can put it, here's why suffering for the Christian is different. When we come to Jesus, we are infused into his life. His suffering has to become ours in order for his resurrection to become ours. In fact, think about it this way. You will never think about hugs the same way ever again. When you go to embrace someone with with both arms, what do you do? You place yourself in a vulnerable position that looks like arms stretched out on a cross. Why? Because like the cross, a full embrace is both an act of humility and an act of unity. Both parties are making themselves vulnerable to joy and or pain, as well as welcoming the other into theirs. 
for Jesus and for Paul, when they embraced and served others, they humbled themselves, making themselves vulnerable to all sorts of pain and persecution. And as a result, allowing for a unity so grand, only humble vulnerability could accomplish it. Here's another example for the married man in the room. Has your wife ever been so heartbroken, so distraught, that she utters the words, can you just hug me? Can you just hold me for a second? Even through our masculine desire to fix our wives' problems right away, we have to humble ourselves in order to experience reconciliation and true healing that is only made possible through this act of sacrifice. And now we'll admit, we don't want to. We refuse to just hold and hug and to be there for our spouses. Kill your flesh and hold the woman for crying out loud. These are the examples that came to mind when I meditated on Paul's suffering for the sake of the Colossians because he has a true shepherd's heart. Paul is experiencing exactly what the Lord said he would experience back in Acts 9 when Paul is converted. In Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This is playing out in Paul's life in real time. Now, here's a phrase that'll throw your theology for a loop. Paul says that his suffering in the flesh is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What in the world does that mean, Paul? Are you telling me that Christ's afflictions, that Christ's suffering on the cross was not enough? That it had to be continued and completed by his people? This phrase in the Greek essentially means that Paul is taking his turn in contributing to the full amount of suffering that has not been reached. So in other words, Paul is living out what theologians call messianic woes. Messianic woes are hardships or afflictions that are expected to fall on the Messiah's people before his return. It's expected. Have you ever thought about suffering in that way? As necessary, seeing your suffering as necessary in order for Christ to return? So in fact, if you're trying to remove yourself from a particular type of suffering that will actually make you more like Christ, you're actually desiring for Jesus not to come back. That may seem like a stretch, but these are what messianic woes are. This is mind-blowing. Listen to what Paul says elsewhere about these messianic woes. In Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, he says this, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then Romans 8, verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I've asked this before and I'll ask it again. What do you need in order to have a resurrection? A death. It is essential, logically, spiritually, and theologically. We need that. 
If Jesus was appointed to suffer, we are appointed to suffer. If Jesus was appointed to resurrect in glory through death, we are appointed to resurrect in glory through death. Paul's not at all saying that Christ's atoning work was insufficient or not enough, but that, but that our suffering as his body still needs to be worked out. If, if the church is considered the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus, intended to continue his work here on earth, then we are to live a life that is cruciform. That word means formed by the cross. Jesus suffered and was resurrected, but while on earth, his body was one of service. The church will suffer, but as we wait our resurrection here on earth, our individual bodies that make up his corporate body will be one of service. Let's make note of another thing too. Jesus and Paul did not suffer the same way. Jesus made reconciliation possible with God through his suffering on the cross. Paul proclaimed that reconciliation through his own suffering for the church. So here's what I mean. One was displayed, the other was declared. One was displayed, the other was declared. The suffering Christ endured was one of prophetic atonement. And the suffering the church endures is one of reconciliation. Paul speaks extensively about this idea in 2 Corinthians where he says, uh, verse 5 says, For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. And then later in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. This means that God values, I want you to hear me this. This means that God values our wholehearted faith so much that he will graciously, if necessary, take away everything else in the world that we may, that we may be tempted to rely on, even life itself. John Flavel says this, I quote, Jesus, I love this illustration, Jesus, our head, is already in heaven. And if the head is above water, the body cannot drown. I'll say that again. Jesus, our head, is already in heaven. And if the head is above water, the body cannot drown. God has, entru has entrusted the church to in individuals like Paul to build it up and steward it well. Verse 25 says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Paul recognized the grand task God had given to him, and that was to preach. The language he uses in this verse speaks of a responsibility given by a master of a house or a king over a territory to his bondservants. God essentially dispatched Paul by saying, son, you're in charge. In charge of what exactly? 
obviously not the whole world, but to faithfully proclaim through suffering the gospel of Christ, namely the unity of Jew and Gentile. This is something we'll fully unpack in the next point, but it's interesting to note that Paul says he was made a minister. He didn't make himself a minister. God made him a minister. This is important to note because when we feel stagnant or even get to the point where we refuse to use our gifts for the benefit of others, we have to remind ourselves that it's not ours to begin with. The master of the house didn't tell us as his servants, hey, you're in charge because you earned it. He basically said, hey, I have purposefully raised you up to steward this privilege well, because to whom much is given, much is required, so treat it as such. When you begin to steward your gift well, and every indwelt believer by the Holy Spirit has a gift, when you begin to steward your gift well, it is actually the growth you see in those whom you are serving that feeds your soul. Rather than, simpling, rather than simply knowing you've been given a gift from God. Sure, it's all fine and dandy knowing that God has gifted you with something, but that's not going to carry you through because people are human and the rejection of others will kill, will kill you. That's not enough. It is actually seeing the growth in the people you are serving that actually feeds you, that sustains you. Paul's marching order, orders were to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, which means that the time has come to fully explain God's plan for salvation because the one who came to fulfill it has come. And the fullness of this salvation is referring to how Christ made it possible for Jew and Gentile to both equally be the people of God. This was radically scandalous for the Jews to hear. The Jews were understood to be the chosen people of God. And so Paul is now dispatched, ordered. His marching orders are now to reveal fully the full plan of God in salvation. And that is precisely what the focus of Paul's preaching was, something he calls the mystery, which leads us to point number two. What did this messenger reveal? The mystery. I'll read verses 26 and 27. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's stewardship involved the act of revealing what was once hidden for generations. I mean, can you imagine the utter weight of this honor? You would want to make sure you got it right, wouldn't you? And even more than that, you would fight tooth and nail to make sure no one even thought of corrupting what you were entrusted to reveal to the known world. Now, Paul uses the word mystery for a purpose because it speaks volumes to the context of his readers. The word in the Greek is mysterion, which means a divine counsel or plan awaiting disclosure or interpretation. This word doesn't necessarily mean completely hidden, 
but it speaks more so to something that needs to be made more clear. It's like you know for a fact that something is there, you just can't quite put your finger on it. The Colossians knew this all too well. In their region, there was this diverse movement of mystery religions. These mystery religions involved secretive initiation rituals and secretistic practices that became popular during the time Epaphras was visiting Paul to tell him what was going on in Colossae. These rituals supposedly established a relationship between you and a false god, which resulted in counterfeit benefits such as immortality. So picture this. You're walking down this town square of Colossae, and you walk by this temple that everyone's, being, that everyone's been talking about as sort of the cool kids club. Only a select few get to peer behind the curtain and experience spiritual victory and satisfaction. But you don't get that without first paying the price. You have to go through the proper initiation process, kind of like a college fraternity uh, does hazing for new pledges. This initiation process in turn unites you with a false god. Once you've compromised your faith through this hazing, you were then led through a series of ecstatic, visionary experiences in these temples. Having passed through this process, you were now delivered from certain powers of darkness, now equipped with the secret knowledge and authority over things in the spiritual realm. Do you see how all of this flies at the face of what Jesus accomplished? Paul says this, this is the true mystery of God. Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, as he says in a verse we'll get to later. You see, God's mysterious plan of salvation revealed through Christ is specifically his ministry of reconciliation. That's the mystery. How Christ unites Gentiles and Jews, creating one people of God. And let me tell you this, this mystery has always been God's plan of salvation. In fact, in Galatians 3 verse 8, Paul actually quotes Genesis 12 verse 3. In Galatians 3 8, he says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God will justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations, not just the Jews, not just Abraham's descendants, all nations, the Gentiles, will be blessed. That's in Genesis 12. And Paul refers to it in Galatians 3. So Paul calls this a mystery because when reading Genesis, it's like you know for a fact something is there, you just can't quite put your finger on it. A mystery. And this is it. Not only will Jews be saved through faith, but so will the Gentiles. And it is all because of Christ. That's us. Paul is certainly opposing the mystery religions of the day with God's unfolding plan to redeem sinners through the Messiah. And at the heart of God's mystery being revealed by a minister like Paul, is the precious jewel of the new covenant, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
as he says in verse 27. I mean, think of a typical mystery or crime novel. Some of the best mystery novels contain hints early on, which are progressively revealed and aren't fully manifested until the very end. And then when you get to the end of the story, your mind is blown because so-and-so is the killer, or this person is actually a long-lost brother, or whatever the case may be. It was there the whole time, yet no one could have seen it coming. No one could have ever seen it coming. In that sense, the Bible is the greatest mystery novel ever written. Remember Proverbs 25, verse 2? It is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to investigate it. Look at verse 27. Paul describes it as the riches of his glory. These are the types of things that makes God, God. And the gracious personal God at that, he cares for us. This is a story we are welcomed into as non-Jewish people, as Gentiles. This is what keeps us from straying and searching for other more exciting and sinful experiences as opposed to just sitting with the Son of God in this reality right here. For you note-takers, I want to take a second and read what Paul writes in Ephesians 3, which is a similar explanation of the mystery of Christ. Ephesians 3, starting at verse 5, referring to this mystery, he writes this which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it was now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light for all what is the administration of the, ministry, of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. And then verse 10 says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God orchestrated salvation in this way so that his wisdom would be made known to everybody. And guess how that wisdom is made known? You. Us. The church. That right there is our mission, as it was for Paul you are responsible of revealing the wisdom of God by preaching the gospel. Which leads us to our next point. Why does this messenger work so hard? Point number three, the mission. Verse 28 says, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul uses the pronoun I throughout this passage with the, with the exception of this verse right here. Paul understood something that a lot of us have trouble accepting. 
that the mission of the church is a collective effort to which all believers are called to individually to devote themselves. We have one mission as a group, but each individual group member is responsible for doing his or her part of the mission. I love, I love gathering with other believers, especially with our young adult group here, because there's always a sharing of how ministering to our unsaved family members or friends went since we last saw each other. My older brother, Angel, lives in Arizona, and he came down for the holidays uh, a couple days ago. The day he was driving over here, I was on the phone with my dad, and he said this, yeah, your, your, your brother is supposed to get here around four or five this afternoon, by the grace of the man upstairs. Now, if you know my dad personally, you would understand the complete astonishment I felt when I heard that. I had never, I had never heard my dad say anything like that before. Now, do I like him referring to God as the man upstairs? Not particularly. But in my mind, that is a step in the right direction. For him to begin understanding that God is the one who directs our steps is a win. It's not a complete victory, but it's a win. I share that because I was, I was so excited to tell, to tell Carolyn, my wife, about it when I got home. I was like, babe, guess what my dad just said? And we got to rejoice in the subtle work God is doing in my dad's life together. Do you feel like you have many interactions like that when we gather on Sunday morning? Are we lacking that vital, very vital encouragement, which, in my opinion, fuels our fellowship? We will have more and more of these moments to rejoice when we recognize our mission to proclaim Him as Paul did, to proclaim Christ. Our mission as ministers of the gospel is to present every man complete in Christ. That's our mission. But what exactly does that mean? I believe we find our answer in Ephesians 4, verses 13 through 15, where Paul says this. In Ephesians 4, verses 13 to 15, he says this. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and in the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ. In Paul's parallel passage in Ephesians 4, which I just read, being complete stands in opposition to easily being swayed. Which matches what he says in Colossians 2, verse 4. And we'll get to that here in a bit. Paul is essentially saying this. I'm doing all of this. I'm saying all of this to ensure that you are not swayed away from the riches you have in Christ. so that you don't compromise your faith by entering into those mystery rituals, but enter into the joy of your master all the days of your life and into eternity. 
You're just not easily swayed. Look at verse 28. Paul uses the phrase every man three times. Now, as as readers and believers of the word of God, when we see this type of repetition, it matters. Here's why. The false teachers of Colossae were teaching a form of Gnosticism in these mystery religions when they got together. This secret knowledge of the few, these these deep mysteries reserved for only the elite group that passed through the initial hazing process. Yet Paul emphasizes all believers are called to full maturity in Christ. Not just a select few or the frozen chosen, as some people may say. This full maturity is accomplished by admonishing and teaching. Admonishing basically means warning. This addresses your conduct, your repentance, your heart. Cautioning and counseling others in light of the truth. This is what, people, this is what the world hates to see from Christians. The typical man standing on the side of the road, the side of the corner, the, the street corner with a repent sign. This is what people hate, but it's necessary. What is also necessary is teaching, which basically means instruction. This addresses your belief, your intellect, your mind, informing and instructing on, on how to live in light of the truth. When there is a healthy balance of both, when there's a healthy balance of both of these in your daily life, there is no doubt that you will stand before your Savior complete. Wise. Having had the ability to contextualize the gospel without compromising the gospel. You're able to make it understandable in your own particular context without compromising it. Let me be the one to admit that this is hard. This is hard. Contextualizing the gospel without compromising is difficult, but not impossible. With God, this is all possible. In verse 29, it says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You see, Paul recognizes his dependency and God's work in him. When he says striving, that word in the Greek is agonizomai, where we get the word agony. Paul is agonizingly growing weary weary as he pursues the hard work of discipleship in cooperation with God's power in him. And hear me when I tell you that just because something's hard, doesn't mean God's not working. Those two are not mutually exclusive. They're one and the same. You have the responsibility of working hard, and you have the responsibility of believing God is working hard as well. At the end of Colossians in chapter 4, verse 12, Paul tells us that Epaphras struggled to achieve this same goal. In chapter, two, chapter 4 of Colossians, verse 12, it reads, Epaphras sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers 
that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all of the will of God. You see, these two servants, Paul and Epaphras, worked hard toward one purpose. Paul was in Rome, Epaphras was in Colossae. This effort from Paul is not an autonomous one. And I will tell you right now that if you try to do it on your own, you will waste away. Probably quite literally. If you try to do something on your own, you will struggle. You will waste away. You will grow old really quick. Paul says, Paul says elsewhere that it is literally the grace of God that allows him to perform the ministry. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter in verse 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So even though he was able to say, yeah, I'm the greatest of them all. He, in the same sentence, in the same breath, he says, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Grace is not simply the pardon of our sins. It is the power to press on in obedience. That's what grace is. Grace is not simply the pardon of our sins. It is the power to press on in obedience. This is what Paul has been, this is what Paul, and I would argue every other minister of the gospel has been fighting for you all and for them to understand. And that is the truth. I want you to know the truth. Because the substance of the purest truth supersedes the sweetness of the most deceitful lie. The substance of the purest truth supersedes the sweetness of the most deceitful lie. I do not care how attractive the lie may be. Being mindful of who God was, is, and always will be will preserve our faith. Paul rejoices in the mission to present believers complete in Christ, the revealed mystery to prevent our deception which leads us to our last point for tonight. Let me finish a little early here. How does this message look practically? Point number four, the manifestation. I'll read, I'll read verses one through three. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are, who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If this letter was written directly to me, I would feel so seen and so heard hearing these words. Paul assumes personal responsibility for their spiritual well-being. How about that? It's not you, it's me. I'm responsible for you. Just imagine the guilt. What if you had participated in these mystery cults and religions? And then you get a wonderful letter like this, delivered by Epaphras himself, your pastor, 
and he reads this publicly. Just imagine the guilt that you would have. And then you read something like this, and that guilt is removed. Not for you to have freedom to continue into, continue into those uh, initiation rituals, but like I said about the thing about grace, it is not just a pardon of your sins. It is the power to obey. He wants us to know that he is actively, agonizingly fighting for the truth on our behalf. And if we look back to verse 24, where he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, we see that he's rejoicing in this agonizing work. He mentions the city of Laodicea, the church, the church that is, that is described as the lukewarm church in Revelation, who surely were failing to see Jesus for who he truly was and is. Kevin DeYoung says this about this type of attitude. I quote, some of us are so familiar with Jesus that we're no longer impressed by him. That's a very dangerous place to be. How many of you, be honest, how many of you walked up that hill just a couple days ago for the Christmas Eve service, saw the outline, saw Luke chapter two, and we're like, oh, this is the same old Christmas message. Now, you don't have to answer. You can take it up with the Lord later. But I'm sure that there were many professing believers who have been believers for decades who thought that very thing. Take heart, do not get bored stagnant or apathetic towards your savior. And indeed, it was a very dangerous place to be because Jesus said that those types of people will be spewed from his mouth in Revelation, the lukewarm church. Paul is so tenderhearted in verse two, not just to soften their emotion, not just to soften their emotions, but to solidify their edification. Despite his lack of personal interaction with them, he possessed such a genuine affection for these churches and surely they felt it. So much so that they probably changed right then and there. A.W. Tozer speaks of those, speaks of rare Christians whose very presence incites others to be better Christians. Let that be true of all of us. Where the, the simply being around these types of Christians, it motivates you, it encourages you to want to be better yourself. Not to impress them, but to be one with them because you are one body. Let that be true for all of us. The false teachers of Colossae were probably putting themselves as gatekeepers and claimed access to the mysteries of God's truth. But Paul here says that Christ is God's mystery and all understanding is to be found in him. Paul's audience must have had a different understanding of what someone's heart was. In the Western world, we see the heart as the center of our emotions. But in the Hebrew world, they saw it as the inner spiritual center of one's relationship with God. 
So with that understanding of what the heart is, what do you think an encouraged heart does to a believer? What about a community of believers? You get a proper perspective of your heart, then you get a proper perspective on how God desires to cleanse it and give you a new one. An encouraged heart leads to an encouraged believer. An encouraged believer leads to an encouraged church. An encouraged church leads to being an immovable pillar in society. You are not swayed. You stand firm. You are a beacon of hope to those in the society that are left out. Believers, we, we are to have genuine knowledge of the mystery because it was revealed to us. Us being in Christ, we are supposed to be the ones who are able to uh, explain it. We are united with him, so we should be able to explain him and his person and what he came to do. In the Old Testament era, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and some would argue Proverbs, was the epitome of wisdom. The law, first five books of the Bible, was the epitome of wisdom. This is what was the Jewish understanding. The Messiah now, however, is the grandest expression of divine wisdom. The Old Testament law told its readers who God was. This is the purpose of the law. If ever you get in a, in a debate with someone who plucks out a, a verse out of Deuteronomy and says, see, look, your God condones slavery. So if you find yourself in that situation, the Old Testament law told its readers who God was, who they were, how they were supposed to act as a nation, and what ultimately pleased God. You don't tell your child to do something or not to do something or not to do something simply because it's easy, simply because it'll make your life easier. You're actually raising that that child up to be like you. Those are the rules. Rules are not given to hold you, uh, confine you, to keep you away from fun. They are actually to build you up to be like your parents. Amen. Amen. Somebody. So this is what the Old Testament law did. Jesus, when he is introduced, he shows his followers who God is, who we are, how we are supposed to act, not necessarily as a nation, but as his body, and what ultimately pleases him. So what does all of this imply for the Colossians in the midst of all of their shenanigans with these mystery religions? The answer is this. Christ is all the temple experience you will ever need. You do not need a compromise. You just need to delight. You need to behold the risen Lord. This rules out searching for any true wisdom, and anything or anyone other than Christ. Especially, especially in ritualistic acts that cause them and us to compromise our faith. Having this clear understanding of Christ and delighting in him, 
will keep you from falling into heresies or false teaching, which is exactly what Paul goes into next. Verse 4 says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. We need to believe, church, we need to believe that the best defense against deception is discipleship. The best defense against deception is discipleship. There is almost, let me tell you this, there is almost always a direct connection between people walking away from true biblical discipleship and walking away from the faith altogether. Just because arguments sound reasonable, we don't have to panic and cave into being deceived and falling into heresy or apostasy. We don't have to panic. Let us be reminded of the truth Paul Paul communicates elsewhere in Ephesians 2, that conversion is supernatural and divine. So if you have truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good, be of good cheer. He has overcome the world. You are in his hand. Paul says all of this to remove the possibility of anyone identifying their maturity and identity in Christ and other things like the law and observing it or giving allegiance to other false gods and or their experiences with angels for further revelation through these mystery religions. You cannot say that your time in that ritualistic temple made you mature, made you a more mature Christian. You cannot say that because of what Paul says here. This is why he says that. Your maturity and your identity is because of Christ, not anything else. When he says that he is with him in spirit, it shows that Paul truly believed that his words contained an authoritative presence among his hearers. They were going to listen to him. Even though they had no idea who, well, they had an idea on who he was, but even though they didn't meet him face to face and he, was, and they, and he wasn't ministering to them as, like Epaphras was, his words still weighed 100 pounds. He says in verse 5 that he rejoices in seeing their good discipline. This word communicates doctrinal order. That he rejoices when he sees them stand against unruliness because the unruliness is how the false teachers act. People who are disorderly in their beliefs and conduct are to be avoided. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says this, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. And then later in verse 11, he says, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, it may sound harsh. You may be thinking twice about some of the relationships you guys hold true, but these words, these exhortations are necessary for us to be built up. Built up. Good discipline and stability 
are military terms in the Greek. So these people have received their marching orders and are saying, here we are, send us. This would cause, this would cause any church leader to rejoice, let alone an apostle. And it does, and he lets them know that it does. When the military orchestrates a formation and goes into war in it, if there is any disorder, miscommunication even, it is more visible from enemy lines, putting them more at risk of being seen, making them more of a target. Right, Adam? Are you, are you at risk of being deceived because you have strayed away from the encouragement and security a local body of mature believers provide? Are you at risk of being deceived because you have strayed away too far from the encouragement and security a local body of mature believers provides? Christ gave up his body for us to have his. Let us not take that for granted. So as we close, let me read this quote about this very topic. I quote, most people relegate false teachings to blatant heresies and obvious violations of orthodoxy. But more often than not, we are deceived by counterfeits that closely resemble the truth. Cultural lies that are camouflaged to the undiscerning heart and convincing personalities that are persuasive and seem sincere. Therefore, it is crucial for us to alert God's people to the risk and equip them to discern the truth and stand firm in it. Close quote. So in closing, the message of the cross is not a mystery anymore. It was manifested to us by a minister like Paul, and it is continuously proclaimed and heralded by the ministers of the gospel. And it is a message we need to embrace in order to reveal it to others because that is our mission. God, in his wisdom, revealed how both Jew and Gentile could be a people together. All fulfilled in the person of Christ Jesus. And we are welcomed into that story. And what can you do for your part? You can proclaim, you can manifest the message of the gospel. You can make it known. You can reveal it to others so that they may have hope in their suffering and you may rejoice in yours, making you more like Christ. And it is, isn't that the greatest gift of all? That only matters, that only matters if you truly have had an encounter of, with the risen Lord Jesus. You have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So reveal this precious mystery to those who don't know it yet. And remind yourselves of how it ministers to you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your great wisdom. And as the God of the universe, Lord, we thank you for being a personal God. You did not need to do any of these things. But Father, 
Even more so, not only did, did you reveal your wisdom, you gave your only son for us to have that, for us to have him, for us to know you better so that we can love you more and in turn love those around us more, even our enemies. So Father, as we walk through this life, as we meditate on this passage, help us stand firm when we are being persuaded to seek something other than Christ Jesus to grow in our relationship with you. There are so many distractions, so many things that we can cling to that we think will make us make our relationship with you better. But Father, we have all the temple experience that we need, and that is in Christ. So Lord, we thank you for this time that, that you have given us, that you have blessed us with. So Father, as we, as we close this evening, help us rejoice in that. Help us rejoice in it so that we may call others to enjoy it and to rejoice in it as well, along with us, Lord. So Father, we commit this time to you. Encourage us, build us up so that we may do the same to others. We love you. We thank you. We ask all these things in Christ Jesus' holy name and all the saints said, amen.